you came back. (laughs) This is a good thing. Last week, if you were not here, last week we started talking about money in church. And everyone was thrilled. Um, But it's good that you came back, because that means you're not afraid to actually talk about things that matter and things that might even be uncomfortable for us, but yet... We've got to go where the Bible goes, and the Bible goes to talking about money and giving a lot. Uh, If you were here last week, you will know we started our June series. We've called it Giving is a Heart Condition. The subtitle is Generosity, the month of June as we study generosity. Uh, If you weren't here last week, I might even encourage you to go back to the church website this week. There was like a nine-minute intro to the series to try and frame the conversation a little bit. Describe why we're doing it and why it's a necessary topic to talk about. But one of the things we saw, there were a couple sort of principles that emerged even from that little introduction over the whole series is that we're called to give not for God's benefit. Right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The God I know isn't short of cash, mister. We give for our benefit. Because giving is one of the ways that God shapes our hearts to look more like Him. God calls us to give, it's part of discipleship. It's part of following Jesus more and more and allowing our hearts to be shaped and molded and sanded and reciprocating sod into the likeness of Jesus so that we might actually reflect His beauty and His generosity. For above all else, God is a giver. For God so loved the world That he gave. So last week, we uh, started into our series by looking at the heart condition of gratitude. And we looked specifically at the practice of tithing, and we saw that tithing both expresses and cultivates, shapes, creates, forms in us gratitude. It's shaping our heart condition. And we did this survey of biblical history, almost a, a theology of tithing. And we saw from Abraham to Moses to Jesus to Paul, and we saw that 10% is a good biblical starting place. It is not a law, it is not a commandment, but it is a precedent and a helpful starting place for the people of God for faithful, regular giving to the church. The point behind it, though, is less about the numbers, less about the dollar signs, and more about an ongoing, regular practice that cultivates and shapes us into a people who are grateful to God for all that He's given us. So that's where we started last week. This week, we push forward into this heart condition where giving is part of who we are, and we explore priorities. And the premise upon which our study of God's Word this morning is built is that giving actually aligns our hearts with God's own priorities. Giving aligns our hearts with God's own priorities. But priorities are tricky things. It's really hard to see a priority. Right? It's like motivation. How do you see someone's motivation? If you could like put a little magnifying glass over someone's heart to be able to look inside and say, well, why are you doing the things you do? What motivates you? What are your priorities? It's really hard to see someone's priorities. We do have one tool, though, that works really well to show our priorities. Money. The way we spend our money 
reveals what's important to us. Doesn't it? I mean, if something matters to you, you'll see an investment in that. If you look at, your, at the end of each year in December, I get all these emails from my banks and I do a lot of my banking online and, and the year-end statement comes through and they even categorize it for me. How much, of my, how much money did I spend this year on dining and entertainment? I can do a search for Dunkin' Donuts and be appalled at how much money has gone to... You can see what matters to you. You can see the values. You can see your priorities based on how you spend your money. So the question is, what are our priorities? Uh, I took that question to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics because I thought they might have an answer to this because they track how Americans spend their money. Uh, and if we break up how a typical American spends their money, this is data from 2016, you can see here are the categories that are priorities in America. What do you think the big one, 43% on the bottom right is? Housing. You got it. <laughs> Especially on the North Shore. Next up, 15%, sort of blue in the bottom left. What's that? You would think it would be food. For the first time in 2016, transportation eclipsed food. People are spending more on their cars and on nicer cars and on more higher lease payments than on food. 14% is the next one. You already got that. That's where food and beverages come in. Interestingly, 2016 was also the first year that's, you can divide that one into two parts. One is groceries, and the other is going out to eat. And in 2016, for the first time, more was spent on going out to eat than on groceries. From there, you can probably guess uh, healthcare. That's up there. Uh, we've got education and communication, and not sure why those go together, but cell phones might be in there. Uh, we've got recreation. We've got apparel. 3% on clothing. Snazzy duds. Uh, and other, of course, is in there because, I mean, honestly, we're crazy people. And how can you categorize everything? There's something that all of these things share in common. They're all about me. What was conspicuously absent from how Americans spend our money? Charity. Giving. Well, there were two things conspicuously absent from that graph. One was retirement savings. And my pocket newsfeed keeps sending me articles about how this generation has nothing put away for the future. Um, but I think most strikingly is that giving is not reflected in the consumer data whatsoever. Now, maybe they weren't measuring giving, right? Maybe it's just that wasn't one of the questions that was asked as, as they built the data set. So I turned to my next best friend. If it isn't the U.S. Department of Labor and Statistics, it's the National Center for Charitable Giving. And they've done their own separate studies to determine how, what percentage of households in America give. And I was shocked. What do you think the number is? Six, I heard. Ten. You might be shocked too. 67% of households give. And that's based on IRS tax data from those who itemize deductions on their tax return. Which means it could be even higher because there are some people who take the standard deduction and don't itemize their charitable giving. So it could be even higher still. That actually speaks well for humanity, doesn't it? <laughs> 67, maybe 70, maybe 75, who knows? But people give. 
That's useful. Um, breaking it down even a little bit further than that, you can break it into religious and secular. And of those who give, uh, 55% give to secular organizations and 45% give to religious organizations. But what really gets interesting is not do they give. The interesting question is, so how much do they give? Because this might even include you know, a $10 donation and that somehow inflates the statistics. So let's mess with our graph a little bit, throw an X and Y axis up here. And on the left, you will see going up the Y axis, 0% all the way up to 100% of their income. Based on their income, what percentage of their income is being given? And the green, the secular, the non-religious giving, out of all the income they could give, they give an average of 0.9%. That's not a whole lot, but it's something. But if we look to religious giving, and this would include churches and the whole thing, like in fact, just so that we can orient ourselves to the data, there's the 10% number we talked about last week, not as law, not as commandment, but as a, a healthy biblical precedent that we can aspire to as a starting place for good giving. Religious giving, out of the possible 100%, no, it goes all the way, 1.8. That's double what the secular world is giving. But recognize that some people do tithe. So some people are giving 10%, which means some people are what, are taking away from the church? Like, how does, like this is an average. <laughs> when they pass the plates, is there a net gain or a net loss as they go around the room? So the point in all this is to, is to say giving is part of our culture. It is part of what it means to be human. It actually, studies have been shown that demonstrate that giving actually triggers dopamine release in your brain, which is sort of part of the pleasure center pathways. It feels good to give. But what does it say about our priorities? When we look at data like this, what does it say about your priorities and mine and the priorities that we see reflected across the entire country? Because I would argue that in the church there is a fallacy that needs to be overcome and overturned. And the fallacy is this, that even among those who say, yes, I want to tithe to the church, I know that is a healthy biblical precedent, Jesus affirmed it and then raised the bar, and I'm going to give cheerfully and proportionally to my income, 10% belongs to God and the remaining 90% is all mine, baby. I can do whatever I want with it. Not sure this is actually what's taught in the Scriptures. We'd better go to the Bible. And to start with, even before we get into the priorities that God has, we need to understand our role in this whole relationship. And I want to direct you to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 27 and 28. We find these words. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Why are we looking at this text? Well, the, the line I would draw your attention to is in verse 27, the second line, in the image of God, he created them. And I'm not going to try and explain or summarize all that is contained in this phrase, the image of God and what it means to be in the image of God. But one aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God comes out of sort of the ancient Near Eastern historical context where a king 
would conquer territory, and in the outlying areas of this territory, he would set up a statue of himself, an image of himself, to remind those people that they are under the rule of the king. And so the idea of an image was to remind people of the ultimate authority. You, in the image of God, was also used of some of the, the vassal kings or some of the uh, delegated authority figures in these distant lands. They were operating as images of the king. We even see that kind of reflected here where the text says they're to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over everything. The ruling as a vice regent, ruling in, some, in, the, in the name. So what, what this text is basically telling us is this. Humanity has been created not to be owners. It's about stewardship. Everything belongs to God. God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything that's in the earth. God has given us breath. He's given us life. He's given us the ability to work and to hold down jobs and to earn income. And all of that, we are just under caretakers. It all belongs to God and we are just stewards. First Peter says it this way. If you don't like Genesis in the Old Testament, let's go to the New Testament. First Peter says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. There's that word stewards. It's, that's legitimately our role. That, that's the relationship we have between us and our stuff. And you might be saying, come on, Tim, that doesn't talk about money. In fact, a, a couple of you after last week uh, were saying, you know, Tim, there are other ways to tithe to the church. You can tithe your time. You can tithe your talents. Right? John Borge and I actually sat out there and did the math that if you tithe your time, you owe 16.8 hours a week. That's 10% of the hours of the week. Yeah, go for that. <laughs> I'll just give the money, thanks. The point is not, is this about money? The point is, we consistently try to highlight everything but money when we teach about these things. Right? We're very quick to say it can be your time, and your talents, your energy, your service. It's like we're always trying to shift the attention away. Just don't touch my wallet. And I would argue that as faithful stewards of God's grace, of His unmerited favor, of the ways that He has provided for us, that He owns everything, yes, God's unmerited grace, His favor upon us is the gifts He's given His people. It's our time. It's our energy. But it also has to include the financial resources and gifts that He's given us as well. And that we are faithful stewards. It's not ours. It's all His. It's the concept of stewardship. And so where the fallacy says, okay, even if I do tithe, 10% belongs to the church, so the remaining 90% is all mine, the Scriptures actually teach something far more radical, which is 100% of it belongs to God, and we are just stewards of His resources. So suddenly the question is no longer, what, should our priorities, what are our priorities? That's, that's, that's just the wrong question. The question is, what are God's priorities? And how do we get in on what He's doing? And so, hopefully you can see then, if this is true, then the act of giving, of allocating our financial resources, is actually a way of aligning our hearts 
with God's own priorities in the world. That what thrills God's heart thrills our hearts. What breaks God's heart breaks our hearts. And that we're willing to invest in what God is doing in the world and in things that are of eternal significance and consequence. We've already established that gratitude comes first, right? That's where we were last week, acknowledging that everything comes from God and belongs to God. So the tithe, that regular faithful way of cultivating gratitude, that comes first. But aside from that, there's a whole lot more that needs to be allocated somehow here. What are God's priorities? And that's a dangerous question. I'm scared to ask God what his priorities are because I'm, well, I'm scared because he's going to make me sell all my possessions, give it all to the poor, and to go minister to a pygmy tribe in sub Saharan Africa. So I'd rather just not ask the question. What kind of God do you believe in that you think he wants to penalize you for following him? Does not God own the cattle on a thousand? Is he not own everything in this world? We, think, we come at these questions from a scarcity mindset, clinging to our money, saying, oh God, just don't take what's mine. We should not be operating from a scarcity mindset, but of a mindset of plenty of a God who has, is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. And out of that, we should ask God, not with fear and trembling, saying, don't take away what's mine, but God, what are you doing in the world? And how do I get in on it? How should I be spending my money, God? Because I want my heartbeat to be aligned with yours. And I'm just going to propose this one way, one framework of approaching it. There are a thousand ways we could do this, right? So this is just one framework to overlay on the question. But God loves people. And so the very first thing we are called to invest in is your own people. What I mean by that is this. God says your own family is a priority to Him. That should take some pressure off. Right? Already we're saying, don't take, I, I, I mean, I want to be able to provide food for my kids and shelter over there. I want to be able to, you know, give them good things, provide education. Like, don't tell me I have to give up all that because I've got to go to... Sub-Saharan tribal Africa. The answer is God actually knows your family has needs. And God wants to care for your family just like He wants to care for you. So all those things we talked about earlier, whether it's housing, transportation, food, beverage, and other, God says these are good and these are right and you should take care of your family. This is beautiful. God wants to provide and He wants to provide over and above what you expect. He's not stingy. He's not a miser. There may be seasons of difficulty and hardship. But the long-term play is we serve a God who provides, Jehovah Jireh. What I was actually surprised to find was not just that God affirms these kinds of things, but there's a special category of family that God calls out by name and says, pay special attention to this. Your parents. Now, I'm not arguing that everyone has a great relationship with their parents. I'm simply pointing us to texts that say we are called to care for our own parents. And our grandparents, by the way. They're mentioned by name too. And even relatives. Check out this text. 1 Timothy, my favorite book, chapter 5, verses 4 and 8. 
This is Paul writing to Timothy about the distribution. There's a widow's list. You can get on the list if you're a widow. If you have no other source of income, if you're poor and you're destitute, you can get on the list. But he's writing to Timothy saying, but there's certain conditions to get on the list. One of them is this, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, here's a sign of a priority, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. And so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. He goes on to say in in more clear terms, in case that wasn't strong enough for you, in verse 8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, breathe, but especially for their own household. I think this is where we start seeing God's priorities. Again, I don't want to oversimplify this and I recognize that we live in a broken world filled with broken families and very difficult situations. But there is something here that says God's priority is family. And that part of the way we should orient our giving and the way we use our resources has to reflect God's priorities. And God says your family matters. And I think that's the sign of a good God. But that's not all he says. There's more. It's not just your people he's concerned about. He's also concerned about his people. Turns out that God says caring for others in the church is sort of next in line. Caring for others in the church is God's next priority. Romans chapter 12 is a powerful passage about life together in community. About being one body with many parts and each of us having gifts and using those gifts together. That the, Together, there's a unity in the midst of our diversity that is able to just bring great glory to God. And in the midst of this, he says in verses 10 through 13, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. And practice hospitality. This, this whole text is about love. right? Be devoted to one another in love. And love, love is not just emoting at people. Love is not just sending warm, fuzzy thoughts at people. Love is a decision to do loving things for people. And here we see a clear admonition to share with the Lord's people who are in need. We are called to care for one another as members of one body. And I I would argue this is beyond the tithe. The tithe is the act of gratitude where the first tenth comes right off the top. I would say this is more about like people in your small group. And somebody get, you know, gets, there's a car accident and suddenly there's a, like a $500 deductible that they have to pay before their insurance kicks in. And you think, ah, that means I can't pay my electric bill or my tuition this month. But if you're part of a small group, how beautiful would it be if that small group said, well, 500 is a lot for one of us, but for all of us? Yeah, that's 50 bucks each. We might be able to pull that off. And we care for one another in practical ways. I 
It might be with people you know. It might be with people you don't know. Um, it has happened at Community Church that individuals have dropped off gift cards in an unmarked envelope wishing to remain anonymous. But they know that sometimes the staff at the church know about needs that aren't generally made known to the public. And the instructions that came with the envelope were simply this. Give these out to people who have need. And that's all the information we had to give. And they were like for two or three hundred bucks a piece. It wasn't just chump change. They didn't even know who they were giving to. But they were giving to take care of one another in the church. That's like totally the best part of my job that week. It's like, woohoo, who do I get to bless next? I love giving away other people's money. <laughs> I would say it extends even to you know, needs among our global outreach partners. I was talking again with Leon this week up in Detroit. And we've, we, we raised money for them over and above our tithe for our Lenten giving. And they were so blessed by that gift. You know, they're, they're considering adoption, and so they're starting to save money for those expenses. Uh, interesting correlation, as you add more kids, you need a bigger car, so they're saving up for a minivan that they need. He's also, if you haven't heard yet, he is also now the lead pastor at MacAv, and Eric has gone off to do a PhD. And so their world is in upheaval, it's in transition, it's in chaos. And the gift that Community Church was able to provide for them over and above our regular giving, simply because there was need. And we had the chance to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's gorgeous. And it reflects the heart of God. And I believe that this is sort of what's, you know, over and over again, even in John 17, which we just finished studying, Jesus says sort of a, in the way that you love one another, the world will know that you're following me, right? They'll know you're Christians by your love. That's not just because we emote towards one another. But imagine a world where we're meeting one another's needs because we're in small groups and we're doing life together with other people. And the world actually sees that. And that individual says, oh, I got in this car accident, but you know, my, my small group all pitched in and they, they helped me pay for it. And your unbelieving coworker says, they did what now? <laughs> How do I get in on some of that? And the answer is, well, let me introduce you to Jesus. There's something attractive. There's something that's supposed to be visibly attractive about the demonstrable ways that we love one another in Christian community that makes an unbelieving world sit up and take notice and say, that's weird, but I like it. They can see our love for one another and know that we are followers of Jesus. I think we see that God says caring for others in the church is a priority to Him. You know where this is going, though. It's not just that God says your people are a priority. It's not just God says His people are a priority. God goes all the way and says that all people are a priority to Him. And that, that's not just all people who are Christians. That's like even those who aren't Christians are a priority to our God. That means even people who are antagonistic to Jesus are a priority to God. I would draw your attention to a verse from Galatians chapter 6. Paul writes to that church in verses 9 and 10, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, 
Let us do good to all people. Then he goes, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So there's that priority again. Tim, you got the wrong verse. No, I didn't get the wrong verse. That was the last point. And here's this one. Let us do good to all people. He's actually differentiating, saying these are two categories. And we prioritize taking care of one another as the body of Christ. But we shouldn't stop there. We're called to do good to all people. Perhaps you're familiar with one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is found in Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right, And Jesus answers him, what's written in the law? You're an expert in the law, you tell me. The guy replies, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes, bing! You are correct, sir. Do this and you shall live. But the neighbor, the, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Is there a category of people here that I do not have to care about? <laughs> that, that, that's what he's asking, right? And that's where the story goes. He's talked about a Jewish man coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked and mugged by robbers and they strip him and beat him and leave him half dead in the ditch. And then a Jewish priest passes by the Jewish robbed, mugged man lying in the ditch and crosses the road to avoid having to interact with him. And then a Levite comes by that same place. A Jewish Levite comes by and sees a Jewish man lying half dead in the road and he circumnavigates the incident. And then a Samaritan comes by. The Samaritans were the worst of the worst as far as the Jewish people were concerned. They had distorted the teachings of the one true God. They'd set up a competing worship center, not the temple in Jerusalem, but their own. And, and they, were, they, were the, they were dogs. This is the hated person on the wrong side of the tracks that comes along. And it's the Samaritan that when he sees the Jewish man who goes over and has pity on him and bandages his wounds and pours oil and wine on them and puts the man on his own donkey and brings him to an inn and takes care of him and the next day he takes out, yes, money. And he takes out money and gives it to the innkeeper saying, this is just a deposit on this guy's care and when I come back, I'll pay you whatever is owed. And Jesus answers this expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers and the expert in the law can only reply, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus says, yeah, do that. Right? This is not just my people. This is not just us as God's people. This is even enemies. This is even those who mistreat you. This is those who don't even like you. This is those who don't even like God. And we're called to care for them too. Matthew 25 is another interesting text. Um, Jesus is talking about when the Son of Man comes in His glory. And all the nations will gather before Him and it says, and He will separate one from another as a shepherd separates sheep and goats. And the king says to those who are considered sheep, because that's apparently complimentary, 
Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Uh, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison or go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. These texts should speak volumes to us. They declare that every human being has dignity and worth because they're created in God's image and loved by Him. So they're going to be loved by us. And that doesn't mean they have to agree with us. That doesn't mean they have to know Jesus. That doesn't mean they have to live lifestyles that are consistent with any kind of biblical norms. People matter. People matter to God. And so they matter to us. And God says, as you establish your priorities and how you spend your money, God says that all people are a priority to Him. Even those who aren't Christians. Even those who are antagonistic towards the faith. What He's saying here, when you put all these things together, is that giving is a way that our hearts end up aligned with God's own priorities. And here are three clear sort of example categories. Again, there's a number of other ways we could have framed it. But this ain't a bad one. He wants to take care of your family. It's appropriate to care for your family. He wants us taking care of one another as a church. And it's appropriate to meet needs on an individual basis as they come to your attention. But He also wants us out there in an unbelieving world meeting needs. And because of this, God calls us to give. Okay. Implications. First implication is this. I think this means we are called to live below our means. We live in a generation that is trying to eke out the highest possible standard of living that, that, that can be managed at our income level. When Joe and I lived in Ottawa, we lived in an area that was considered Silicon Valley North. There were some huge tech companies that lived up there. And the urban sprawl, I mean, houses were being built like crazy. And there were BMWs and Mercedes in every driveway. The salaries were really, really high. And the pastor of that church up there, as we met with him, indicated to us that actually those same families ended up at the food bank at the end of each month. Because so much of their income was dedicated to the lease on their Beamer to try and maintain the sort of lifestyle standards that were seen as the acceptable going rate that when an unexpected expense happened, they ran out of money for food. Now how are you supposed to be generous if you're living right at your means? But rather, if we're being called to be aligned with God's own heart, to be, when we see needs, to be able to give to those needs, 
that means we need to have some resources available, which means maybe we should be living below our means. Maybe instead of this much, we get this much. I don't care what it is, whether it's a house or a car or the internet package that you choose. What does it look like to intentionally live below your means? That might free up some income, A, for retirement savings, because I hear being a good, wise steward of money is good and planning for the future and caring for your family is all healthy and good and right and biblical. But even more than that, what would it be like to have this one little account over here that you were ready at the drop of a hat when you saw a need, like, ah, I can meet that need. How much fun could you have looking around saying, how can I meet a need somewhere this week? How can I meet a need somewhere this month? And to be ready when you see that need to be God's hand at work in someone's life. That would be awesome. Living below our means might be one of the ways that we can be ready to give according to God's priorities. It means sacrifice. It means not having the nicest things. It might be worth it. It might be worth it. I think, secondly, and maybe this goes without saying because this is what we've kind of been saying all morning, allow your heart to be aligned with God's priorities. And that means, yeah, care for your people. Care for your family well. Consider the challenge of caring even for your extended family and what it means so that they won't be a burden on anyone else. Care for God's people. Meet needs as you see and hear about them. Care for all people. But I think if you really want to have your heart aligned with God, I think you need to delight in giving. I think money has such a hold on us that we can talk about giving, we can teach giving, and we can teach principles and biblical standards and starting places. We can even teach about the priorities of God's heart, and we still are holding on so tight that to give it away is like, oh, bummer. Instead of it being radical, abundant joy. If God is a giver, then giving is one way to reflect the love of God in a broken world, which means enjoy it. Because God delights to give. Which means be creative with it. Find cre- be sneaky with it. Do covert giving ops. There's nothing that says giving has to be this begrudging, oh, I wish I didn't have to, but the Bible told me to. That is not a cheerful giver. What the Bible says is give and give cheerfully, or the Bushfield Paraphrase Version, give sneakily in order that you can bless people with God's own blessing that He's given you. I think this, this delighting in giving is part of the real shift that has to happen in our hearts. If we want our hearts aligned with God's priorities in the world. I mean, ultimately, God's main priority is Himself. right? His own glory. And that that would be demonstrated and enacted as people come to saving faith in Him. Like we can solve hunger in Gloucester, but people would still be lost. We can fix all homelessness on Cape Ann, and people would still be lost. 
ultimately the best thing we can do for an unbelieving world is point them to Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't address hunger and homelessness. <laughs> it means we just don't lose sight of the ultimate priority in all of our giving, which is the greatest gift that God gave us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. This is what we're saying when we say giving is a heart condition. Because it's actually all about hearts that are reconciled to God. And we have a chance to give in such a way that the actual way we spend our money aligns our hearts with God's. And we can be His hands. His generosity to our own families, to the church family, and to an unbelieving world that just needs a glimpse of His love for them that they might actually meet Him.